Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. I want to start off by giving you some advice. All right, here's some advice for you, especially if you're around three-year-olds. All right, here's the advice. If you want to feel smart or intelligent, my advice is to stay away from three-year-olds in general. Right, if you want to feel smart, stay away from three-year-olds. Now, why would I say this? It's very simple. A three-year-old, well, they're in this space, they're in this time when they're curious about everything. And they ask a lot of questions especially to their parents or adults they trust. The reason that they do that is because they assume that we know everything, which is flattering and terrifying at the same time because we know we don't know everything and we don't want to be exposed for the frauds that we are, at least in their minds. So when they ask us questions like, why is the sky blue and we don't know, it's this uncomfortable situation. Right, we realize, or they realize very quickly that we aren't as smart as maybe they think we are. Or when they ask us, why is it raining today, Dad? Or Dad, what's the name of this dinosaur? And I have no idea. Or Dad, where do babies come from? Okay, I actually know that one, but I'm not gonna have that conversation with my three-year-old daughter, at least at this point in time. But they ask us all sorts of questions and we don't know the answers. And maybe this is why when they grow up and they become high schoolers, that they don't trust us or they don't think we know anything because we couldn't answer all their asinine questions when they were three years old. So here we go. I'm gonna ask you one of these questions this morning that a three-year-old would ask you. Maybe a three-year-old has already asked you along your path and your journey. How does a caterpillar become a butterfly? How does a caterpillar become a butterfly? Now, if you paid attention during seventh and eighth grade science, maybe you have kind of the general categories. You remember, okay, there's an egg and the egg becomes the caterpillar. The caterpillar then grows up and it gets into a cocoon or chrysalis. Don't really remember, it doesn't really matter. And it's one of those two. And then it becomes a butterfly. And that's kind of your, your general awareness. If a three-year-old asked you, you'd probably work them through the process. But here's the problem. That will not be good enough for a three-year-old because they're gonna ask you a follow-up question. They're gonna say, but how does that work? And then you're gonna be in trouble, aren't you? And you're gonna be in trouble because everyone's in trouble when we get to this point in time. Because even the world's best scientists still debate and still speculate how this amazing, mysterious transformation happens. I mean, it was unbelievable. When, when you stop and think about it, it will blow your mind how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. But I don't want to leave you there today. I want to explain a little bit to you what I know, what we know, because I want you to be educated when the three-year-old asks you that question so you don't lose their confidence, so that you feel good about yourself. So, so here we go. Here's what I learned this week by studying, studying this story and studying, understanding, trying to understand how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Now, a lot of it you're gonna know already if you pay attention in school. 
It starts off by the mother laying the egg on the leaf. Over time, the baby inside begins to grow. It, it breaks through the egg, it eats the egg, it eats the leaf, and then it does not stop eating until the inner part of the caterpillar outgrows the outer parts of the caterpillar. At this point in time, the chrysalis forms and this whole entity, this whole being becomes like ooze. And this is where some scientists believe that the insect inside, the caterpillar inside, when it turns into ooze, actually dies. The cells die. And when those cells die, then other cells that are dormant spring to life and the development of the caterpillar begins. Now, once the chrysalis is broken open, the butterfly is developed, then we see this amazing butterfly, which is wild, isn't it? This is amazing, isn't it? But there's more. Recently, scientists have found that a butterfly remembers what a caterpillar learned. Now, how did they figure this out? Well, this is what they did. They trained a caterpillar to solve a puzzle, and then they watched it go through the transformative process. Then it became a butterfly. Once they had the butterfly, they took the butterfly to the puzzle, and the butterfly was able to solve the puzzle instantly. This is mind-boggling, how something can undergo that much transformation and change basically into a whole different thing and still have all those memories. This is an amazing work of God. This is why I believe scripture says that because of the light of creation that we are without excuse. That if we just stop and pause our lives and look around us and just marvel at the majesty of what God has done, we will come to one conclusion that there has to be a creator. There has to be an intelligent designer that he created all of these things. But I believe it's actually deeper than that. You see, I know that is true, but I believe there's even a deeper component to creation. I believe that when God created the world, that he put his truth deep into the world, built into the world. And I think this is why when Jesus taught his parables, oftentimes he used the everyday, ordinary things of life to explain spiritual truth, to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like. Because God had built into our creation, built into our stories, things that were showcasing that he is who he is, to showcase of, of what he is like. And so I believe if we look into these things, we can actually pull out spiritual truth that matches and aligns with God's word. So today we're gonna use the butterfly in that way. We're gonna think about the transformational process of the butterfly coming all the way from the caterpillar. So I just want you to hold on to that truth as we dive into this complex conversation about what happens next. And we're gonna go right to God's word in 2 Corinthians. This is what Paul writes for us. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, if you were here last week, you remembered we talked about tents actually last week. We were talking about a man named Abraham, which is a real historical character, and we see his life in the Old Testament. That's where we read about him. And we see that Abraham was given this amazing promise by God, a promise that God was going to bless him, was going to great, make a great nation out of him, and was going to bless the entire world through him. Now, of course, like every promise from God, there, there's certain ways that we have to act to engage in that promise. So Abraham had to believe, he had to trust, he had to follow, he had to have faith. But thankfully for us, Abraham was a man of faith. Not a man of perfect faith, but a, a man of faith. And so he followed where God was leading him. 
He moved to a foreign country. And when he arrives, we see something shocking about this man of faith, that even though God had said, I'm going to bless you, he didn't bless him in every area. In fact, as we look at Abraham's life, what we see is that Abraham, well, Abraham lived in a tent, which is shocking to us because that doesn't sound like a blessing because tents, well, they're uncomfortable and they're temporary. And that was the point. You see, God was using this moment in Abraham's life and in his family's life to remind him day in and day out that this life, well, this life is temporary. This life is broken. This life is uncomfortable. It is sinful. And it made Abraham realize every day of his life that we are foreigners and strangers in this land. This is not our home. This world is not our home. There is something waiting for us. So today, as we read Paul, Paul picks up on that language. He continues the conversation, and he talks about this tent, this earthly tent. Now, when Paul is talking here, he's not talking about a place that we can live within, at least for a moment of our lives. He's talking about our bodies. What I see when I look at you, what you see when you look at me, when I go home tonight, I'm going to look in the mirror and be reminded that I'm getting older each and every day. There's less hair where I want there to be. There's more hair where I don't want there to be. There's gray hair, right? There's aches and pains. You go to the doctor at this point in time and they don't say, well, this is how we fix it. They say, well, this is the result of getting older, right? This is our earthly tent. This is what we live in. And each ache and pain reminds us that this is not how it's supposed to be. Right? Each ache and pain, every sickness, every disease reminds us that God has something more for us that there is a master plan. Paul calls this the building. The next stage of life is called the building. And a building is what? A building is not temporary. A building is permanent. A, a building is, is, is not only permanent, but it is comfortable. Paul is pointing to what our hearts yearn for is something better. That perfect body and that perfect relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, Paul goes on to explain it in depth. He says, for in this tent, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden, because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So now as we dive into this very complex way that Paul writes about what's going to happen next, this is where we need our butterfly metaphor. This is where we need to look at God's creation, the way that he communicates to us and, and, and take that out and put it to the forefront of our mind. So we start off with the earthly tent. Maybe we could call it the caterpillar phase, right? We have our aches and pains. We have our sicknesses and we, and we go through this and we long to be, as Paul says, further clothed, right? We long for something else. As we work through this process, we make it all the way to the butterfly phase, right? This is further clothed. This is our building. This is the majesty of what God has awaiting for us. And if we want to understand what this might be like, we don't have to look any further than the person of Jesus Christ. Because what happened in Christ's life? Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, God in flesh, came to live among us. He was fully God and fully man. He experienced everything that we have experienced. He experienced the bumps and the bruises and the rejection and things like that. It, by, the Bible tells us that he, he experienced every temptation that we have experienced. So he experienced everything that we had experienced. The only difference was 
He did not fall into this temptation. He didn't screw up. He didn't sin. Every decision that he made was correct. Which makes us think, if we made every decision correctly, wouldn't our lives be perfect? Right? If we ate perfectly all the time and worked out the right ways and did everything we're supposed to do, wouldn't everything work out fine? Well, the answer is no, and we see that in Jesus. Because even though he never sinned, what happened? People turned against him. He went to the cross. Now, ultimately, it was his decision to go to the cross to die for our sins. But when he died, he died. His body physically died. He was taken down from the cross and he was put into the tomb. And of course, in three days, what happened? He was resurrected. That's what we celebrate a couple weeks ago on Easter. That's what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. That's what we celebrate every Sunday. That's why we have church on Sunday because this is the day when Christ was resurrected. That's what we're celebrating, that we have that hope in Jesus Christ, that we have something awaiting for us, this new body. But today we're not having the conversation about the new body. That actually happens next week because we're not fully ready for that yet. Today we're going to talk about something called the awkward in-between. And this is how Paul describes it. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So what Paul does here is he adds to what he's already written, and he begins to explain all of the process. that We might look at it as the butterfly process. It starts with our earthly tent. As Paul describes it, he says, we are at home with our body, but away from the Lord. Right? This is our moment right now. We are in our body, and we are disconnected in some ways with Jesus Christ. Even though we, we believe, even though we trust, even though we follow, even though we have faith, we don't have that perfect relationship with Jesus Christ, right? We know this. It won't take you more than 10 seconds to realize this is the accurate, this is the reality we live in. We long for that, but we don't have that. That awaits. Even though, as Paul says, we have this guarantee of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know this, that the Holy Spirit is what prompts you to faith. The Holy Spirit works in your life, draws you into faith, and as long as you don't reject the work of the Holy Spirit, you get to be a part of God's family. And so as people of faith, we have this deposit, this guarantee of the Holy Spirit within us. And this reminds us day in and day out that we have the hope of a future where we have that perfect relationship with Jesus Christ and we'll have that new body. But that's not what Paul is focusing on here. Paul is focusing on the awkward in between or the chrysalis phase. What happens in the meantime? Well, this is how he describes it. He says, there's a moment when we'll be away from our body and presently with the Lord. Away from our body and present with the Lord. As we think through Jesus, as we think through what happened to him, we, we see this. This is the tomb moment. In the tomb, our body dies. Our body begins to decay and our spirit is ripped apart from our body, which is unnatural for us as humans. We are meant to be a body-soul unity. But in that moment, we are ripped apart. The body stays in decay, but our spirit is elsewhere. Now, how, how does Paul describe this? Once again, he says, we're away from our body, but we're present with the Lord. So even though we aren't with our human body and we don't have our, our future body yet, that's yet to come, and Jesus will tell us about that here in a second, we are in the presence of Jesus Christ. And as Paul says it, 
this is actually better. So when does that body and that soul unite once again? When do we get to that point in time? Well, this is what Christ says. He says, this indeed, this is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him may have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. So in Christ's very own words, we see what happens next. In the last day, when all things come to an end, when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise, as Scripture tells us, the rest of us who are still alive will join him in the clouds, and then in that moment, our new bodies and our souls will be reunited. But in the meantime, we live in the awkward in-between when we die. So the question is, well, what about Grandma? What about my spouse who's perceived me? What about my child who's perceived me in death, right? What about all these people that I loved? I, I had this visual in my mind that they were in heaven, flying around and doing all these things. But, but what are they actually experiencing? What is scripture actually saying? Well, Paul tells us they are present with the Lord, which should give us some incredible peace. Because to be present with Jesus is to be in a place where there is perfection, there is love, there's no pain, there's no sorrow, and we can take comfort in that day in and day out. But Paul's not done. This is where he takes us next. He says, so whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. So here, Paul points to the reality in which we're living and the reality in which we will live. That someday we will sit before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. At that point in time, we will learn about our eternal punishment and our eternal rewards depending on what had happened, depending on our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I wanna get into this conversation with you, but I don't have time today. So we're gonna save this for a different day. So just hold on to this thought. But what I want you to really get out of this this, the simple truth that you need to hold on to is I need you to remember that Christ is the one who overcomes. It's Jesus who is the conquering king. Which means if, if you are relying on yourself to overcome or someone outside of Jesus Christ to overcome, then you have already lost the battle. But Jesus is the conquering king. He is the one who is conquered. He is the one who we trust. So as followers of Christ, what we do is we go to the throne room of Jesus Christ and we kneel down and we acknowledge him as king. Jesus, you are the king of my life. You are the boss of my life. And this is the beautiful thing about that moment. When we put our faith in Jesus completely as the one who overcomes and we kneel before him as our king, he picks us up. He picks us up and says, okay, now I want you to join me. I want you to fight this battle with me. Well, what is the battle? Well, Paul tells us. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others, but we ourselves are well known to God. And I hope that we also are well known to your consciences. So what is the battle that we fight as believers while we're still here? What is the partnership we get to have with Jesus Christ? Well, we're fighting over the hearts and lives of our community and our world. But we're fighting for real people with real souls that really matter. This is why following Jesus Christ is so important. Letting him be the king of our lives is so important. And what we do with our lives is so important. And Paul knew this. This is why he wrote these words, because Paul was an enemy of Jesus Christ. He was against everything that Christ was about. 
But all of a sudden, he had this encounter with the risen, conquering king, Jesus Christ. And in that moment, everything changed. Everything he knew, everything he thought, he put it to the side to follow Jesus Christ. Everything he'd worked for, he put it to the side to follow Jesus Christ. And Paul became the greatest missionary the world has ever seen, using everything at his disposal to share this truth of Christ to the nations because he wanted everyone to be persuaded to have this king in their lives. So Paul would live his life doing this, and he would write most of the New Testament for us, like the section that we're reading today. Then he would continue to inspire the next generation to continue his pursuits until in 64 AD, what would happen? Well, Rome would come in and behead him for his efforts. They didn't like what he was doing. So the question is, what happened with Paul in this moment? Once Paul ceased to exist, his body went down to decay, what happened to Paul? What happens to our loved ones? What will happen to us when we die before Christ has come back? Well, Paul's already told us. Right? In the end, our body will go to decay. Everyone. Everyone's body will go to decay if we, if we die before Christ comes back. And our soul will go somewhere. But the big question is, where will our soul go? Well, you've heard me say this many times. Our soul, or our spirit, or our heart will go wherever we want it to go. You see, this is how God works. He gives us what we want. And for some of us, we want a relationship with Jesus Christ, which means we walk into the throne room and we kneel before the king and we say, thy will be done. But there's some of us who don't want that relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't want a boss over our lives. We don't want a king in our lives. And so we reject the work of the Holy Spirit. We reject Jesus. And so when we walk into the throne room of Jesus Christ, we walk in with our arms crossed. And he knows our heart. And he looks at us and says, well, thy will be done. This is a very scary reality of life. Because there are some of us who want to have Jesus as our conquering king and we'll enter into an eternity with him to experience his love and his peace and his patience and to experience a place where there is no pain and sorrow. But there are some who will reject Jesus and they'll be apart and away from Jesus. Well, and those who are experiencing this, well, that will be a hell of its own. To be apart of the love and peace and everything that Christ can offer us. So what do we do while we wait? What do we do while we're still in the caterpillar phase as we're awaiting the chrysalis phase and the butterfly phase? What are we called to do? What should inspire us? Well, I believe that during this time, we should take advantage of what God has given us because we are here for a reason, which means every ache and pain and sickness and moment in life when we remember that this life is broken and we are foreigners and strangers, we should remember that person across the street, that person in our classroom, that teammate that we have, that coworker that we have, that person that we oversee at work, whomever it is, whoever we come across, we must remember the value that God has placed on their lives and on their soul. And this life has real eternal consequences. And remember that God has picked us off our knees and says, come fight this battle with me because you are a big part of someone's story. 
We are called to persuade others and tell people about the love of Christ so when this life ends, and it will end for all of us, that we will know exactly where we're going to go. We'll know exactly where they're going to go. Yeah.